Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, rail traffic in Canada is halted. Where is the Prime Minister? Some insight into the panel's on bullying from the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Will we make progress? And following the geography of a pandemic. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Had a very interesting conversation with Ellis Ross yesterday. He's an MLA from Skeena, British Columbia. Uh, former band leader, and and we asked about who is supporting this, who isn't, why the supporters don't speak up. You know, they've been trying, but uh, there's some things that, that hold them back as well. They're, the lateral violence within Native communities is is massive. A lot of uh, First Nations leaders know that uh, you got to be careful what you say because you yourself or your family can get threatened by other First Nations. You can get threatened by, by non-Natives. But now the, the elected leaders are, start, are starting finally to find their voice and they're starting to speak up. And even band members, regular band members that are fed up with seeing their communities divided are starting to speak up as well. All right. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, has advised many leaders and is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated as always. Scott, first thing I have to tell you, buddy, Ben Gay doesn't exist anymore. You're dating yourself. My <laughs> God, Ben Gay, I know the smell well. I've I know. used it too. Come you know, on. Hey, the, the Ben Gay is off the shelves, but the smell the smell lingers. The smell yeah. remains. Does it, it ever? Now, here's another little fun A535. A535, there you go. Here's another fun fact which may help with this conversation. So years ago... I used to work for the Department of Indian Affairs for a number of years. I've done two academic theses on uh, challenges in indigenous communities and invested, investigated election, uh, Indian election violations. And the gentleman you just had on, I can attest to what he's talking about. I have seen it firsthand that the dynamics within many indigenous communities are such that uh, as he rightly said, it can be very difficult for people to speak out because they fear reprisals and repercussions. Uh, Ellis basically said that this was not a Canada issue, that this isn't between Canada and the Indigenous community. This is between Indigenous communities within the ban- elected band council and hereditary chiefs. Is that accurate? Well, yes and no. Um, I mean, the, a rail blockade is a Canadian issue. Um, the fact that goods aren't getting uh, to the places they need to get, people aren't able to travel by rail from where I'm in Ottawa up to where by uh, where you are, up past Hamilton, in Hamilton, that, that's a Canadian issue. Um, it's a complicated issue. I, I want to give credit, I think, to the police for the way they've been managing it thus far. Um, but it can't, these blockades just can't continue. I don't know, Scott, if we're about to see some daylight, given uh, the message that the Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller sent to some of the leadership in in, in Tendinaga, the Mohawk community, and uh, the group of Mohawks who are currently blocking 
uh, one of the railways. Uh, maybe that helps, but it's uh, it's a very frustrating issue, and it's not just restricted to uh, Indigenous communities. Uh, what about the Prime Minister? He seems visibly absent with all of this. Uh, he, he hugged a lot of votes out of the Indigenous community with Truth and Reconciliation, and now it appears he's leaving it up to the Premiers of British Columbia and Ontario to settle this. Yeah... I, I struggle with this one because there's some strategy in all of this, right? If you are the prime minister... The fact that you, there's a PC government in Ontario and an NDP government well, in no, BC? Not, not even just that, more of, of the fact that um, if you are the prime minister and you uh, come back every time there is an action like this one, it means you're not going to be going away a lot. You have to find a way to, I think, first try and solve it with the tools that you have and the ministers that you have, like Mark Miller. Now, if this thing is continuing next week, then I think the prime minister has to take a more active role because it's not just one thing that's happening. And I think Ellis probably said that to you as well. There are a number of different activities that are happening, some coordinated, some uh, that aren't coordinated. Uh, Maybe prime ministerial engagement helps resolve them. But uh, it's a dangerous precedent to call the prime minister in every time there is a dispute between an indigenous group, uh, a railway, uh, and, uh, and, a, and a pipeline uh, provider. I can understand him not wanting to go down and show his face at a, at a protest or anything, but does he not have to do something, and by that I mean get the rail traffic moving again? I mean, the courts have made a ruling here. And absolutely, that's a key point, right? And let's explore that point for a minute. So... Uh, indigenous leaders have used the Canadian court system that applies to all of us to win some decisions and lose some decisions. And a court in this case had said that, uh, uh, that different projects have the right to, uh, to proceed. So you can't just selectively choose to adhere to the law. Uh, however, this where Ellis is right, so what you have now happening in different communities is the elected leadership uh, may say we support all of this, but unelected different groups within uh, First Nations are choosing to act in the manner in which they are. So who do you go talk to? In any negotiation, it's trying to understand where the power rests. And if the chiefs are on side with you or if the leadership's on side with you, then where do you go to um, end a blockade like this? Well, that's that that's not an easy one to figure out. And you got to do it the right way so that you don't have a domino effect of, of more blockades and more disruption popping up. But if this is proving to be a minority situation where uh, it's anti-pipeline uh, protesters who are uh, sort of hijacking the indigenous issue, I mean, sooner or later, won't truth prevail here? I mean, at the end of the day, there's an elected band council and a majority who are behind it. I understand it's, it's, it could be dangerous for them to speak up, but at the end of the day, we have to arrive at the truth, do we not? We have to arrive at the truth, and we have to enforce the law, right? Uh, I think the, the prime minister, the policing agencies that are dealing with this at different levels probably let this go one or two more days. Uh, and if they haven't seen action by that at that point in time, then uh, I, I think the truth of what the court has adjudicated and, and what, uh, what what they have uh, given in terms of injunctions need, need to be fulfilled. It, it's quite interesting, if you go back again to Mark Miller's note, which was 
uh, personal email he sent to three key Indigenous leaders. Uh, and, of course, Mark Miller, for your uh, audience's purposes, is a Mohawk speaker. He taught himself Mohawk. He has a respect in different Mohawk communities. The community that is blocking the rail line is a Mohawk community. Anyway, all that to say, he said, you know, I'll meet you Saturday if you scale this down. Uh, and uh, still giving them a little bit of time. But I think that Saturday is an interesting date on a number of levels. I don't think this blockade can go on next week because there will be people who are not getting their propane, who are not getting their food supplies, and it becomes more than just uh, an Indigenous versus Crown issue. And that politically is not good for the Indigenous protesters who are looking to build broader support outside of their community. Well, this seems to be tabled as Canada against its Indigenous community, and I don't believe that's an accurate statement here, is it, Tim? And yet I that's, agree with you. And that's the way this yeah. is being sold on every newscast and in every publication. It's, my God, how can Canada do this to its Native people? And yet, on the other hand, uh, nobody's asking why the hereditary chiefs do not respect the the opinion of others in the Indigenous community who have elected their own councils. Well, let's go to the first part of your statement. You're 100% right. This isn't Canada against an Indigenous community. Indigenous communities or certain Indigenous groups have used the court uh, to try and, and uh, uh, inhibit the development of different projects. They have been uh, rebuffed by the court. That same court, or a different level of court, had said greater consultations need to take place in other resource uh, developments. That has happened. As it relates to some of the major projects that are out there now, TMX, Frontier, there are many indigenous communities that support the development of those projects because they see them as being helpful to the development of their communities. So it is wrong on many levels to say this is Canada versus its its first people. That's not true. Uh, as it relates to the hereditary chiefs uh, versus the um, uh, elected chiefs, um, that, 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 that is an indigenous issue, but it's an indigenous issue that is impacting all of us and resolution to it needs to be found. And perhaps it, it's an indigenous led resolution that uh, is needed here. Uh, what do the hereditary chiefs want? I mean, is this just another layer of consultation that we haven't gone through and that, you know, once this one's finished, it's another one, then another one, then another one? What uh, is there is there is there negotiation here? I haven't seen what precisely it is that they want. All I've seen is the absolute. We, you know, we don't want, don't want it. We don't want it. Yeah. And that's usually a starting point for anybody in a negotiation. We don't want it. Okay, but if you do X, Y, and Z. So I don't know if they're looking for um, more land protection, more investment. I, I don't know. I have not seen any of that articulated. Or simply, as some have said, and Perry Bellegarde, uh, man, I respect that chief of the Assembly mm -hmm. of First Nations, who represents all of Canada's First Nations, has said, if nothing else, this has started another conversation. So maybe that's all they want. <laughs> However, it's a costly conversation. And not only that, what about the other programs, and, or sorry, projects that are waiting in the wings? I mean, we're going to expect the same thing from Trans Mountain again. I mean, it just it just never ends, it seems. It never ends, and I think... Um, no matter how much, and you know, and and, and you know, God bless Prime Minister, the Prime Minister Trudeau for uh, the ninety-eight uh, Truth and Reconciliation uh, recommendations and 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 promising to act on them. But I, I think there's a very long list of prime ministers who've attempted to do the same thing. 
Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you go back to Brian Mulroney uh, in our active memory when Ben Gay was uh, was sold on shelves, Scott, uh, that, uh, oh, who, oh. who, you know, pushed a self-government agenda even before him, uh, Pierre Trudeau, to a, to a certain degree. I mean, look, I think indigenous communities, uh, they're not homogenous. It's a dangerous thing to suggest. Indigenous leadership isn't homogenous. Some will agree progress has been made. Some won't. Um, but it's also become a political strategy and, and blockade a tactic that has worked to get things done, not unlike, say, a strike by teachers in Ontario, right? Uh, so it gets blown up into a bigger issue, and often it's about what's happening in the immediate term and how can different groups advance their agendas. That's neither right nor wrong. That's just the strategy and the tactics that are employed. So where is this going? <laughs> well, it, um, I, I think all sides are hoping for a peaceful resolution. They don't want another um, uh, Oka. They and we haven't really had one, thanks be to God. I guess. Do you think by Do you think by the prime minister sitting on his heels and letting the the provinces deal with this? Do you think he's instigating that sort well, of I thing? I mean, he a bit of a change of approach, Scott. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No. With, with Miller putting, don't forget now, Mark Miller is one of Justin Trudeau's best friends. Yeah. So it's hard to imagine Mark and the Prime Minister didn't have a conversation about Mark sending a personal email to these three people, three Indigenous leaders, late at night. So this is a clear indication that the federal government, through their appointed Indigenous Services Minister, who has a history and is liked by, the Mo- by different Mohawk communities, uh, that they're uh, now about to get more involved. They're on the job. Well, they're getting more involved, whether they're on their job or not. That's for, uh, right. for people to determine, depending whether you're trying to travel to Ottawa or you're waiting for propane in New Brunswick. <laughs> All right. So, um, uh, Will, uh, where do you see this going? I mean, again, the only thing I can think of here is the, is the strike by, uh, by CN workers that lasted a week. Uh, this ca- can this go longer than no. a week with all of a sudden, without all of a sudden people saying, well, gee whiz, you know, we, we've got uh, labor issues that can be resolved, yet we can't resolve this issue. No, it can't go on longer than a week. This, this isn't a remote, you know, rail line uh, where you have alternate these are major rail lines right that connect the country that impact the economy uh i i I think they'll all find a way to step back and they'll push it right to you know it looks like the rcmp and the opp and whatever particular police force uh comes in uh i hope certainly that's the case but uh, if, if we're talking about this next week that's not good and it likely means something bad has happened did government promise Indigenous communities something it couldn't deliver? Yeah, a simple answer to that. Look, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, over uh, inflated expectations to a point that they were not able to deliver on their... That's their why I think he should be here, Tim. Maybe, but again, I, I'm just uh, cautious about that. And then maybe he, uh, he, uh, he comes back sooner rather than later, cuts off his trip to Munich. I don't know. I just think he sets a dangerous precedent doing that. But you're right. I, I think stopping, a ra- I think letting rail traffic grind to a halt is also setting a precedent. So. Uh, fair point. Uh, but I, I, we can un- agree strongly on the point that expectations have been inflated beyond the point of delivery because... You know, Trudeau, again, you can appreciate what he's trying to do here, and, and other prime ministers have tried to do to improve Canadian-Indigenous relations, but 
sadly, it's a slower process because there is, as we've seen, so much history, so much culture to unlock, to solve specific problems in specific areas. When you suggest with great gusto and enthusiasm you're going to move miles in, in, in four years and you can't, then, of course, people are going to be disappointed. And, of course, they're going to expect more. So that, that was always a, a challenge with the ambition of uh, the prime minister's indigenous agenda. What do you think? How do you think the provinces are reacting to this? Meaning BC and Ontario, are they just standing <laughs> down? down? Are yeah. they just standing well, down until the prime minister handles it? Because because well, if I'm been, the prime minister of any of those countries, it's like or any of those provinces, that's what you're going to do. You're not gonna you're not gonna end up with another Oka on your hands. Uh, no, you're not. Uh, I mean, Ontario has been generally pretty quiet, which is probably smart on their part. Uh, Premier Horgan in BC has been a bit more front and center, and his words, I think, have been have, have been wise, and he's been encouraging people to to find a resolution. I think that's the way you need to go. I think he probably has more credibility with the Indigenous community in BC to do that. I don't know if Premier Ford has that in Ontario, so he's smartly stayed away from it all. I mean, you know, the Conservatives in Ontario, as you know, are terrified of creating another Ipperwash situation. So that is also probably why Premier Ford has said, all right, feds, um, you figure this out. So who is it that's finding the resolution? Well, I think it's going to come in a couple of three different areas. I mean, the, the the police ultimately have the ability beyond whatever any politician says to decide to act, and they now have uh, court orders, injunctions that allow them to act. So they're they're likely gaming out what the best approach is if this thing you know drags for a few days. Then there is this federal government overture from from Miller. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. And thirdly, I think it's within the indigenous communities. I think you, you do have, and you're seeing more of this appear in the media today, uh, indigenous people who want these blockades and, and sympathetic protests to the West Loon, uh First Nation to end now. I think they think you can step back and say the point has been made, but too many people are being impacted, and if you don't step back at a certain point, then you're going to lose whatever public opinion support uh, you gain because ultimately people want their goods and services and they want to feed their families. And while they may care about indigenous issues, if they can't do those things, they're not necessarily going to be as committed to their principles and wishes on this front. So that's the three different uh, pathways, I think, that are at play at the moment. Well said. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Been gay forever, Scott. That's Talk it. Love it. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The first of the panels into bullying at the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board uh, held last night. Uh, you can imagine what the emotion must have been like in this meeting anger, frustration, uh, and such. Uh, parents and students speaking up about how bullying has impacted students and, and, and what their life is like. Uh, in this situation and, 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 and how they evolve and, and move beyond this. Let's bring in Dr. Jean Clinton, a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences in the Division of Child Psychiatry at McMaster University and is with us now. Jean, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Did I just cut her off? I think you cut her off, dude. Yeah. She's gone. All right. <laughs> 
Uh, we're going to try to get her back. Uh, we've had some phone issues here, so uh, Will's trying to work on that. Uh, you can imagine what it was like in this meeting last night. And uh, go ahead. So joining us now is Dr. Jean Clinton. Uh, Jean, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. So, Jean, what was it like in this meeting last night? Describe it for us. Yeah, I think you've described it very well. The uh, uh, the the feeling, the emotion, the stories, uh, uh, just lots of hurt, lots of anger uh, and frustration, and um, uh, a sense that there's an urgency that something needs to be done and needs to be done yesterday. So lots of uh, lots of great conversation, though, as well. You know, it was a productive meeting with uh, uh, people saying what they thought would be useful. Uh, what needs to stop happening and what needs to start uh, happening. So talk about the objectives of these panels. What are you trying to accomplish? Is this a listening? Uh, is it listening at this time? Uh, uh, is there advice? Is there uh, a plan moving forward? Or is this just about gathering information at this point? Yeah, so it's, um, uh, it's we as a panel, uh, the three of us, uh, Dr. Gary Warner, Brenda Flaherty and myself, we are independent from the school board and our task at this point with the 15 to 20 sessions we'll be um, uh, connecting with the community really is to listen is to listen to hear what are the concerns, what are the stories. Uh, people have been thinking about this in their lived lives. What are they coming up with in terms of what they think um, uh, might, might work? The sessions are being facilitated by an organization called, um, uh, called Kojo. And so at the sessions, what we're hoping is that people will, uh, will work with the, with the facilitators and really write down uh, uh, so that it can be collected. What are the major themes? What uh, What is going okay? When were there situations that uh, things were resolved well, which we heard a little of last night? Uh, but what, what what's your lived experience and what can we do uh, in terms of recommendations that we'll take to the board that can, um, uh, can change how the reality is just now? Uh, many parents will have said that they've tried to communicate what the problems are. They've tried to uh, uh, describe what the pain is and, and, and what is going on, and they feel largely ignored. So how do we reassure everybody that this isn't just another lip service listening session and that this will actually move towards some sort of solution? Yes, yeah, Scott, I think you, you've, you know, you've really nailed it. We heard that absolutely loud and clear. And so what we heard loud and clear is what is in place in terms of how it's applied in different situations is not consistent, is not meeting the needs of families and children. So we are listening um, uh, very intently. We will have recommendations. This is a very visible exercise. Uh, we have the support of the uh, uh, the board and the um, and the executive. So this is a time of change. We are hearing very clearly change needs to happen. We hear an acceptance of change. You know, we have Brenda Flaherty, an expert in change in organisations, and uh, we have. 
have uh, Dr. Gary Warner, an excellent um, uh, expert in how communities uh, engage and move forward. So we're going to be making some uh, pretty strong recommendations, I'm sure. Um, but we're not interested in just having a piece of paper that uh, gets put on a shelf and it gets ignored. We are going to have some, you know, when when will we see some of these impl- Im- recommendations, whatever they are, uh, when will they, when, what can be done now, what can be done in the medium term and what can be done in the long term? Uh, we, uh, we, we certainly know after uh, the, the tragic, tragic death of Devin Selvey and, and just the horrific incident that happened there, uh, I remember talking to the board shortly after, and it's, you know, we, and, and all boards will say this, we have a zero bullying policy in effect and a zero tolerance and all of this, but it, it seemed that that was just a statement and there really wasn't much there to, to actually uh, help the victim. Um, do, you, do, you, do you feel that somehow out of this we will get some sort of concrete, uh, uh, you know, I won't even say a solution because that's too difficult, but at least something to move forward on? Is there anything you, yeah. can, is there anything you can see at this point? Yeah, so, you know, Scott, the issues are, as you're, as you're implying here, they're very complex, they're complicated. Kids come to school and families come to school with complicated and complex lives. Yeah. And so school should be a place of safety. You can't learn if you're frightened or you don't, or you don't feel safe. So it's paramount to the objective of educators to, you know, have kids learn well and live well, that something be done about this. So there are, we're hearing very clear that there is a disconnect between what the policies and procedures might outline but what happens on the ground in action. And so we are going to be examining um, along with, you know, we'll do sur- surveys to find out from teachers, from parents and, um, and students what is happening that is interfering with you being able to do what is expected. And, you know, you bring up a valid point uh, earlier uh, in regard to, you know, the kids coming to school with other issues. This is not just a school problem, is it? I mean, I think when stuff like this happens, we look to the, the school system to do something and to try to help this or fix this or or who's to blame. Whereas in the end, this is a societal issue, is it not? Is it is it just a school problem? No, no, it's absolutely, you're right, um, Scott, this is not uh, uh, exclusively a school problem. Uh, School is the place where all students, all kids congregate. So you see it lived large um, in school. But you're absolutely right, one of the meetings that we will be having is with um, all of the community partners, and there's something like 300 uh, partners who are engaged with the school. We had a a, a woman from probation um, uh, was... uh, uh, was there uh, last night saying what, you know, she was asking, what role can we play? Uh, what can we do? How can we help out? So it really does, you know, the old cliche of it takes a village to raise a child. That's exactly what I was, I was exactly thinking that line, Jean, when you were mentioning yeah. that. I mean, it's, yeah. it, we need support from everyone. We need support from everyone and we need the rallying call that, you know, our, if, our, if our kids 
are the kind of canary in the mine shaft that's telling you something's not going well here. Well, we've got a big, big um, uh, uh, issue uh, here with bullying being the tip of a problem. So let's get on it now. Let's create safe and inclusive schools uh, where kids feel safe enough to say this is what's happening. Um, that they know the teacher knows what to do when they hear about it. The VP or the principal knows how to act on it and can 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 look at the, what the needs of the children and the family are in each individual case, as well as what are the needs of these children who are are, are perpetrating the bullying. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not just um, uh, it's not just kids that uh, are troubled kids who are engaging in bullying. The majority of the kids engaged in the everyday kind of bullying are middle class, well to you know they're mm-hmm. the good students. Yeah. So it, that means the culture needs to be uh, addressed very, very, uh, very, very uh, realistically. You, you're right. I mean, you know, uh, just even the other students, enablers, people who uh, perhaps enable just by doing nothing. I mean, they, they all play a role here, don't they? They do. And, you know, Scott, we heard horrific story um, about a couple of kids who were beaten badly and all kinds of kids were standing around filming it yeah. for social media. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 um, uh, we are only going to regain a civic and civil society by, uh, by really working with our students in public education to make a significant change in, uh, in how, how kids see each other. It's a relationship issue. Uh, at the mm. end of the day, how you relate and how you interact and how you respect the other. Um, and so that's what needs to be. And, and I'm, I'm so, you know, as we're learning from the board, they are embracing this. The, um, all of the board are involved in uh, emotional uh, coaching, uh, so validating feelings, being more aware of the emotional life of kids. Mm. Um, so there's steps absolutely in the right direction, but a long way to go. Uh, you brought up another valid point, and and how, how do you explain uh, those that? And again, we've been talking about the bully and the victim, but those enablers that are standing around, and you know, uh, creating a scenario here, a fictitious scenario: ten, twelve, twenty students standing around, uh, some kid getting the bejeebers beaten out of them, and the rest are filming that. How do you? How can you not look at a person? who's being victimized and and a not help but b enable it by putting it online and, and taking a picture of it how do you explain that yeah it's very hard well i think i think what is happening in that kind of situation is your the the those students must be putting the other that you know the 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 young person being victimized in the other you know quote unquote category and they're 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 not they're not able to experience empathy or compassion for them and so that this is this is part of social and emotional development and learning um, uh, that uh, and we're we're seeing with these kinds of uh, actions a diminishing of of empathy for the other which is very, very scary. It's very scary. Mm-hmm. How, do you, so, how do you explain that? Why would kids have less empathy now? Again, at the end of the day, if someone is hurt, isn't our natural reaction to help? One would hope that is a natural reaction. And one-on-one, 
that may be the natural reaction, but in the group situation and with the drive and the reward of social media, uh, some of that altruism, I think, uh, gets over uh, gets overridden. You know, it's a fabulous question you ask. Uh, why why do we have less? Uh, less examples of empathy. And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with our, our society and the stressors that not only kids are experiencing, but parents are experiencing, community is experiencing, and we're having less and less time of face-to-face, being together, enjoying relationships, having that um, heart well, you know, that, that kind of life is good and has meaning. I think as a society, we're not, we're not having the opportunities to do that as much. Lack and, of engagement, lack of, lack of family support, lack of parental yes. support, lack of engagement. Lack of government support in terms of let's make sure that mm. our policies, as we're thinking about them, are child and family friendly. You know, let's let's look at, you know, our First Nations people say, think about the next seven generations when you're making decisions. Mm. So that's that's saying let's let's think about our kids uh, as our most our most vulnerable. You know, the the measure of a society is uh, is is looked at by how well they look after the most vulnerable, you know, children and the elderly. And we, we're not doing a terrific job right now. Is this the reason society seems so divided right now? So so divisive? Lack of empathy? Absolutely. So I think one is lack of empathy, and I think the second thing is when people have a sense that they are their their voice is not valued, their voice is not heard, that they're they themselves are not understood. I think that's when you start to see, you know, these divisive um, uh, uh, these great, these great divides. You know, people don't get me. So, in fact, it's when people have uh, a sense that they're not safe that they don't feel valued and they don't feel that they've got purpose. And I think we're seeing an erosion, we absolutely see it, an erosion in all of that with the the rise in mental health, with depression, anxiety, is going to be the number one cause of disability. With this erosion, do you see hope? I absolutely see hope, and I see hope in the faces of uh, the young fellow who stood up last night, who um, uh, is a student uh, victim of bullying, um, saying he was there, he told his story, and he spoke of what can we do? The person who bullied me was also a hurt person, hurt people hurt others. Mm. So, you know, for a kid to have gone through that, to come and be in that room and share that uh, for um, uh, for Mrs. Selvey, you know, Devin's mum, uh, to be there and, and, and be talking about the supports that are needed for um, uh, uh, for the community, there's, there's hope. There's hope we can we can touch that core of civility um, uh, uh, in people when they feel safe, when they feel valued, and when they feel that they've got a purpose. So, uh, what's next for these panels as they move forward? So we will have the uh, the fifteen to twenty sessions between um, uh, between now and the end of March, um, and people can find out when the sessions are if they go to the um, the, the Hampton Wentworth District School Board website. Uh, say schools review. The next one um, is uh, on Saturday, actually, for students with special needs, and then on February nineteenth at Westdale. 
secondary from six to nine. Uh, and so we'll do this, um, uh, do lots of listening. The consulting firm is going to listen to all of the, uh, everything that was said and bring out themes. What are the themes that are recurring over and over again? We're also going to do an online survey. We've got phenomenal experts, you know, top, top researchers in Canada and the world, uh, and people who are deeply embedded in understanding mental health as, uh, and how special ed works. Um, so we'll be creating an online anonymous survey um, uh, with, uh, with that group and uh, uh, pulling, it, pulling it together. And, of course, if you want to find out more, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board uh, Safe Schools uh, Review in order to find out more information and uh, how these panels will proceed. Dr. Jean Clinton has been with us, clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatric and Behavioral Neurosciences in the Division of Child Psychiatry at McMaster University. Jean, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck with this. Okay, thank you very much for your time, Scott, and hopefully we'll chat again. We will. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Conflicting reports over the last couple of days in regard to the spread of the coronavirus, uh, the new coronavirus, uh, which is now COVID-19, I believe. That's the new uh, the new term for the actual disease. Uh, that being said, we had heard reports the other day that um, uh, confirmation of new diseases uh, had new diagnosis had been had leveled off in China. Uh, that cases had stagnated. Then we had heard later on that that was perhaps due just to reporting or the fact that the systems just become overwhelmed uh, and they've leveled out. Uh, now we're hearing. Uh, reports uh, the other day that uh, China experienced the most deaths in one day because of the spread of this disease. From an Ontario perspective, let's bring in a quick clip from Dr. Barbara Yaffe and talk about the Ontario numbers. 306 confirmed negative, 16 presumptive negative, 15 are currently under investigation. We have two confirmed positive and another case that resolved, the one in London. And uh, this is Dr. Vanessa Allen and says Ontario is making some changes to how it's doing the testing. We've harmonized our testing at Public Health Ontario with the National Lab, and it's also the same test that's occurring at the BCCDC. That happened on Friday, um, and we ran specimens, all specimens in parallel at Public Health Ontario, as well as the National Lab over the weekend, and they're a concordant. Um, and so that is a total of 81 um, individuals that were tested in parallel. 15 are still pending from the National Lab. And Dr. Barbara Yaffe again on information in regards to China's uh, changes in testing. We're not really clear, as Dr. Williams alluded, on how to interpret this change. And uh, there are a lot of questions to clarify uh, the change in case definition and uh, I sit on the technical advisory committee of the special advisory committee of the federal, provincial, territorial uh, group, and uh, that will be one of the technical questions we'll be looking at. And the World Health Organization echoing that uh, it is too early to predict the end of this outbreak. To talk more about all of this, Tom Koch is with us, adjunct professor, Department of Geography, uh, University of British Columbia, and the author of numerous papers and books, including Disease Maps, Epidemics on the Ground, and the Cartographies of Disease. And he is with us now. Tom, thank you for taking the time. Much appreciated. 
Sure. Uh, the other day, we started to hear information that uh, the number of cases uh, that had been confirmed had started to level off. Uh, and then a, a day or so later, we're starting to hear other information that, that says that China has had a, a, a record number of deaths in regard to this in one day. Uh, too early to predict all of this. H- how do you see this as you overlook all of this? Okay. The distinction we need to make is between data, that is the data coming in, the facts which are being reported day by day, and information which is stuff, really data that is, comes together and you can take to the bank. With something like influenza that we understand, the data quickly becomes information, the tests are very clear, and we can get a very good picture. With the, I still want to call it the, the Wuhan virus, but your uh, COVID-19 we're in a state of learning as we go. So the tests that were being done are now being standardized, as you heard from Barbara Jaffe. We don't know in China, because the labs have been so overwhelmed, whether the newly reported numbers come from basically the labs catching up, Mm. and that has been several days, whether these are in fact new cases, people just presenting at the hospital in a day, or ones which have been there and may have already been cleared. So this is about, and this happens when we have a new disease, and this happens when we're overwhelmed in an epidemic or pandemic. Labs get backed up. Tests have to be regularized. We have to define what are the symptoms. We have to distinguish here between uh, people coming in who may indeed just have influenza, which is what many of the people in, tested in, uh, in Ontario have, mm-hmm. and whether there is, in fact, this coronavirus and now we're, we're able to examine it. We're able to sort of say, yes, it's this coronavirus as opposed to one of its neighbors. And so what we have is an evolving situation where everybody is telling the truth and giving the data they have, but the data is dependent on a whole number of things as these things develop. So you're not concerned so much or questioning the accuracy of the numbers coming out of China in any way? Numbers coming out at this stage of an epidemic, and I've tracked up, the first epidemic was, uh, I think it was 1500 B.C., Hmm. uh, influenza, and I've written about epidemics from then till now. And we saw this with Ebola, we saw this with influenza in 2009, where early numbers, early assumptions got changed as the data grew and we got to be more familiar and confident in them. So... None of this is to be a knock on China. They are doing, I think, a very good job. Mm-hmm. But we it's not that we don't trust the data, but we realize the data is tentative. That is, it's dependent on labs. It's depending on lab volume. It's depending on the number of people who report at a hospital and getting that data to a central location. And this is all pretty, pretty heavy and complex stuff. So what it is is an unfolding story in which... The data of the day may be changed tomorrow. Hmm. Uh, we've heard, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that this uh, obviously not as deadly as SARS or or even the common flu in some situations, but what's concerning is the spread of this and how quickly it is spread. From what you know, uh, what, are, what is your response to the speed of which this is spread? Uh, the speed in China or in the world? Uh, let's start with China, then go to the world. Okay. This virus, this new virus, started up and presented itself in December, and it, because it looked something like 
influenza, uh, people were reluctant, or at least the government was reluctant, to say, yes, this is in fact new, and we didn't have a genetic picture of it. So when it was recognized that it was by the time it was recognized, and this was a huge travel season in China for the for the lunar, lunar holidays, right. people who had been infected but were asymptomatic, they weren't, uh, they didn't look like they have a fever, cough, cold, they they could breathe, they were traveling all over. So in China from uh, Wuhan, the disease spread, and it spread because of the massive travel which was going on at that point with people who were asymptomatic but infected. And because it's a new virus, pretty much everybody is more or less susceptible. When China realized what, what it was and notified the WHO and the other world bodies, people began to take notice, and travelers and travel agencies started to take notice. China instituted one of the most extensive quarantine programs we've seen uh, since 1691, uh, in an attempt to slow the passage of the virus in China, although the, what is the phrase, the, the cow was out of the barn? Right. The horse had left the barn, yeah. Thank you very much. I can never remember that one. At the same time, the horse had left the barn. At the same time, in Southeast Asia, a number of countries were infected at the very early part when it wasn't clear what this was. For countries like Canada and the United States and England and France, we were more distant. We had more time. So as people were coming back from China or from an area where there was infection, like Singapore, we were being very vigilant. We were being very vigilant in asking them to self-report. Our emergency rooms were being very vigilant in looking for these symptoms as opposed to just the influenza symptoms. And as the testing for this, which is remarkable how quickly we've built a test, began to develop and be standardized, we were able to find and isolate the people who were infected very quickly. So that's all very good news, and that's actually exceptional in the history of epidemics. We now have seen this virus and its genetics, uh, this RNA strand. It's a very robust little fellow. We have been able to test... Um, and say, yep, it's that robust little fellow and not another one. We are able to basically in the e- to quarantine and to or at least isolate people in the ERs where it's suspected um, and send them off to isolation or into home isolation. Uh, we haven't seen that really since polio in 53. We've a little bit in SARS. What about the way China has conducted mass quarantines? Has that helped? Is that is that needed? Many have said in Canada that we couldn't do that for for civil well, rights laws and could. such. But is uh, is the mass quarantine needed? Is is has that kept us at bay? It has certainly slowed the progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, at bay, as I said, the the horse was already somewhat out of the barn. Right. Uh, the travel and the population there was such, and that's something I've, I'm, I'm going to be studying. But the quarantine was, one, the only thing they could do to try and slow the epidemic. And we have had quarantines since the 1300s. The word actually comes from the Venetian and meant 40 days, quarantina, which is the amount of time a, a ship from a quarantine, from a, a play country had to stand up before they were allowed in. Hmm. Uh, so this is... Going, in 1691, they had a three-stage quarantine to try and slow the plague in the province of Bari, Italy. A beautiful, actually very, very advanced system. 
what they have done in China has been creating a massive program with people in their houses, regulated when they can come out. And we saw something like that actually in the plague years in the 1600s uh, in England. So there's a lot of precedent. When you had a new virus, and we know it's transmissible between people, that system of quarantine they have has been was really the only thing they could do to try and slow the virus and begin to get a handle on it. In the interim, airlines have begun began to cut back on their their flights to China, and have now pretty much ceased. So, and travelers coming in from China or Southeast Asia are being screened more carefully to try and identify people who might have been infected and who can um, then be put into isolation. And so that's all good. So yes, I think they had to do this. We had to quarantine those ships in Yokohama. Uh, and that's, we've been quarantining ships since the 1600s at least. Uh, and yes, the people on those ships may be getting, more people may be getting sick because they're in that tight environment. But what we can do then is limit the spread of the disease from there into the cities that they would be going into. Mm. And this is what we always do, have always done, when faced with an epidemic disease. The How... good news, just to follow up on your last question, mm-hmm. is yes, this virus does not seem to have a high mortality. We don't, there's, there's a mortality ratio of people who died within a population, and then there's a, something more technical, a case mortality ratio. That we can't figure because we don't have actually the back data. At the moment, we can say that the mortality level of this virus in China, and it seems to be relatively low and within the parameters of many of our influenza experiences. But again, what it, it, the, the mortality in Canada, where we've got a few cases, they're immediately isolated, we are, they're being watched assiduously, will probably be much lower than it was because of the early stages in China where nobody knew what was going on. So how concerned are you with COVID-19? Uh, are, are you con- convinced it will run its, its course? Uh, any idea, any end in sight? There's always an end. Vi- of, of, these things do not last forever. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I, don't, I, think it will, I think it will end before the spring. I think myself that we'll see a peak in China in the next week or so. That's my guess. Uh, but the WHO is right to be cautious and to not be making uh, predictions while we're watching it come. I think that in terms of Canada, that our vigilance is paying off and that we will not see a major epidemic here mm-hmm. because our health system and the world health system has allowed us to be uh, proactive. What about, uh, so obviously Canada has learned something here from, from SARS. What about if this spreads to less developed countries? Yeah, the world has learned from SARS. Uh, the world, SARS was a wake-up call for everybody, not just us. And protocols began to be put into place and systems in place after SARS, which began to come into play with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa uh, in, in, uh, two years ago and which we now see today. In the less developed countries, well, we've seen that there's been uh, epidemic outbreaks in the Southeast Asian countries abutting China and in that area. They were early on, they hadn't, um, they were infected early on before this was uh, recognized, and they're continuing there. Uh, And that goes down to Singapore 
and other places. Uh, whether it will hit in Africa or when, we're not sure. That depends on basically transmissibility and who goes and brings it in. Certainly, however, less rich and less developed countries with more fragile health infrastructures will be much more challenged by the introduction of this virus. So, for instance, in India, they will be much more challenged than we would be here mm. in Canada. Uh, so, uh, we've seen this before with SARS. Can China stop this from happening? What do they need to do in order to stop this chaos from spreading? Whether this is less deadly than SARS or not, it's still creating a lot of chaos around the world. How do they? Can they stop this from starting? Well, it's not chaotic. In fact, it, I mean, epidemics, it looks chaotic to you and on the map. This is following the progress of what viruses do and bacteria do when they are, have evolved and come into a new population. China, to me, has done everything which can be done at this point. Some people think that they've been rather draconian in their uh, house, uh, keeping people in their house. You can only go out and shop once every five days. Uh, their health system has been stressed, and that's why Canada has been sending them some supplies because the face masks and hand solutions uh, just ran out. So what can they do? Well, they can do the quarantine. They can try and maintain uh, with liquids and comfort the people who are seriously ill. And by slowing this, and hopefully we're not sure what the incubation rate is, how, how much time between getting infected and the manifestation of the disease, and that's important to know for futures. So my answer is, no, this will not end tomorrow. Yes, this will end. I, I think it will, certainly will end before the summer. Uh, my guess is that the peak of this epidemic and the numbers in China will be within the next week to 10 days. That's just my ballpark guess. I think we will see continuing parts of this story as we have people in isolation, as we see it in other countries. And I think here in Canada, we will continue to be vigilant and watching for somebody who may come in or be infected. And rather than just assuming in the ER that it's a late-stage influenza, that is influenza, you know, at the end of that season, they will all be watching and we will be testing a lot of people, and that's a pressure on our labs, against, uh, against uh, COVID-19. So the good news is that we're doing everything we can. WHO and other advanced countries are doing everything they can China is really trying to do everything that they can. The data on this evolving virus is coming out daily and being made available globally daily uh, through a number of, uh, of portals mm -hmm. from China and elsewhere. That's unprecedented. That's, that's extraordinary. The bad news is that this virus will end, but there will be another. The WHO calls it disease X, something we never expected and don't have anything against, which will have a very high transmission rate and a very high mortality, and that's going to come in the next probably eight to ten years. Hmm. So this is not the end of the viral evolution. Uh, we're seeing a rapid, for a lot of un understood reasons, bacterial and bacteria and viruses are evolving rapidly due to the stressors that we put on them, including global warming for hmm. some. And we're going to see this type of thing again. So what we need to do is distinguish between the data that comes out, and then the information that becomes secure. And we need to recognize that we have an international and national series of policies and programs and, and specialists who 
are reacting more and more quickly and with more and more experience as we face these these scares and fears in these incidents. Tom Koch has been with us, medical geography at the University of British Columbia, author of numerous papers and books, including Disease Maps, Epidemics on the Ground, and Cartographies of Disease. Tom, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to, glad to be with you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.